This morning, Lord willing, we're going to finish Mark chapter 6. We have spent some time in this longer chapter, but finishing it up today. So find Mark 6, and I will be there with you in a couple minutes. A little bit longer introduction. I want to set the stage on some things. This is probably familiar to most of you, but in case it's not, I'd like you to understand something. God is our provision and protection. You can see that lots of places in the Bible. I'm going to show you two of them right now. God is our provision and he is our protection. If you go back to Genesis, Genesis 15, you read a statement that God makes to Abram. He's still Abram at that point. I'll read it to you. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So there we have it. Your shield, your protection, your exceedingly great reward, your provision. Last week, we read Psalm 23. And we can find it there as well. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm not going to lack anything. He is my provider. Skip a few verses down. You have verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He protects us. He is our protection. He is our provision. Last week, we saw Jesus provide for his disciples and thousands of other people. He was acting as their provision by miraculously feeding them. This week, we're going to see Jesus protect his disciples in a storm, another windstorm. More importantly, he's going to show them who he really is. Now, for those of you who know the Gospels, you have been in our series in Mark with us, you understand this is not the first windstorm on the lake, is it? We had one back in chapter 4. And those of you who are familiar with college classes, a lot of times the the freshman first semester class is 101. So they had Storm 101. And now this is Storm 102. I want to share with you, hopefully that's big enough for you to see, a few similarities, a few differences between the first account in Mark 4.35 through 41 and this one today in Mark 6.45 to 52. First off, in that storm, Jesus was, was with his disciples. In this storm, he isn't, at least not at first. Last time, he was with them, but he was asleep. You remember he was asleep on a pillow there in the boat. This time, he's alone on the land praying, and they are in the boat. What is similar? In both cases, a windstorm came up. That is common to Lake Galilee. Happens a lot. This time, Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. The first time, the disciples were fearing for their lives. They were afraid of the storm. Oddly enough, what we see in this passage is that they're afraid of Jesus because they're not expecting him to come walking on the water. We wouldn't either. In both cases, Jesus calmed the storm. And the first passage says that the disciples feared exceedingly. This passage tells us the disciples were greatly amazed. So we'll talk about what some of those things mean as we work our way through. But I'd like us to understand, first off, that God sends us through storms, but also remember why God sends us through storms. There are two reasons. The first is correction. There are times that the storm is a chastening. It is to stop us in our tracks. It is to redirect us, to encourage us to come back. And my illustration for that is Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go to Nineveh 
and preach. And what did he do? He goes the other way. He disobeyed, is how we would say that. He disobeyed. And what we read is that the Lord sent a storm, a great wind. And we know the rest of the story. He ended up getting thrown overboard. And as soon as he got thrown overboard, it's calm. So that storm was sent to correct, to chasten, to get Jonah's attention. And I believe it did. But then there are also storms that are not because of anything that we've done wrong. It's not that we're disobeying God or running away from him or trying not to do what he's told us to do. We are smack dab in the middle of his will because that's where we're going to find the disciples today. He said, go and I'll meet you later. And they got in the boat and they went and they found themselves with the wind against them. So they were obeying. They were in God's sovereign will, obeying God, and still there's a storm. And those kind of storms are designed to complete us, to perfect our faith, to grow us up in the Lord. And you can also find, this was fresh on my mind because I've been reading Acts in my devotions. Acts 27 is, I think, the longest narrative we have about Paul being shipwrecked. And you can read about that storm. Was Paul doing what he was supposed to? Yes. God had already told him, you're going to go to Rome and bear witness for me, and this is the way he's going to get there. So it wasn't his fault. God wasn't sending chastening after him but he was in god's will and there was a storm so why does god send storms either to correct or to complete i think a devotional email is where i got this quote but the guy's name is bill moots don't know anything else about him but he said god will not protect us from what he will perfect us through there are times he's going to send us into storms Some of you have already had a storm this morning. Some of you already had a storm this week. Some of you are going to have a storm this next week. Because, let's face it, the Christian life in a fallen world, we are either in a storm, or we are soon headed into a storm, or we are coming out of a storm. That's pretty much the way it works. But that's the way it worked for the disciples in this passage. So let's read our verses for this morning. Would you stand, please? I'm going to read Mark chapter 6. And I'm going to begin in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened when they had crossed over they came to the land of gennesaret and anchored there and when they came out of the boat immediately the people recognized him ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was 
wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we come again to a familiar passage, and we ask again that you would give us fresh ears and fresh eyes Lord, with the psalmist, we pray that we would behold wondrous things out of your law today. Lord, where necessary, break up the soil of our hearts where it is hard. Speak to us in ways that we can understand and give us grace to obey what you show us. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would empower me to speak your word this morning and that he would empower all of us to listen with attention and intention to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Three ideas for you this morning. First, God sometimes sends a storm. I probably could have said he often sends a storm, but he sometimes sends a storm. God sometimes comes to us in the storm. What do you mean he sometimes comes to us? Well, he's always with us. We know that promise. But sometimes he comes to us in the storm the way he did with these disciples. And then third, sometimes he calms the storm. Because sometimes he doesn't. There are some storms that we will be facing for the rest of our lives here on earth. And they are there to complete us, like Paul's thorn in the flesh. He asked the Lord three times, make this depart from me. And how did the Lord respond to him? My grace is sufficient for you. I will get you through this. I will give you all the grace that you need but I'm not going to take away the storm. I'm not going to take away the thorn in the flesh. So let's look at this, and and I should probably say one more thing about storms in general. I'm speaking figuratively, because in my mind, as a kid, as an adult, until I really studied it this week, I've always thought of these storms on the Sea of Galilee as storms, the way I think of storms. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's rain, and there may have been. But you're not even going to find the word storm in this passage in Mark. You're going to see the wind was contrary. If you go to the parallel accounts in John and in Matthew, you're still not going to find the word storm. And if we go back to that Storm 101 back in chapter 4, that one says a windstorm. So I don't know if the thunder and lightning were there or not. I don't know if the rain was there or not. Carson and I went to a lake this summer, and it was not raining, and it was not thundering, and it was not lightning. But the wind was blowing hard, and we were trying to kayak across the lake, and we were not going where we wanted to go because the wind was sending us where it wanted us to go. And that's definitely part of this story, whether or not the thunder and lightning was there. So let's look at this first idea. God sometimes sends us into a storm. Verse 45, immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. He made his disciples get into the boat. Made is a forceful word here. 
He compelled them. He made them get into the boat. Some of you parents of children, when they were younger, or maybe right now, you go to a playground and you want them to come. It's time to come to go home. You may need to be a little more forceful to get them to come. That's the idea. It's get into the boat is the idea there. He forced them to get into the boat. Why? Well, there are a couple of reasons that I see. One is that he's sending them ahead so that he can pray alone. We're going to see that's what he does next. He's sending them ahead so that he can have a little prayer retreat. But number two, we would have to go to the parallel account over in John, and you don't have to turn there. I'm going to show you one verse, John 6, 15. Here's what was going on. He had just fed 5,000 men. We figured that it's 10,000, 15,000. Some people even think 20,000 people he just fed with the little boy's lunch. Five little loaves, those English muffin size, and two little fish. And they liked that. They were in favor of that. And they decided, what better king, what better Messiah could there be? And they're ready to make him king. That's what it says. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So that's the backdrop from our parallel account. Jesus is seeing the danger. His, his disciples weren't ready to argue with the multitude that no, it's not his time. No, this isn't the way this is going to happen. Yes, he's the Messiah, but, but no. They, they weren't prepared for that yet. So he just gets them out of the way. Because he's not going to allow this multitude to make him king. What did they want? They wanted free food for life. That's not the kind of Messiah that he came to be. No one, if we had been there, we wouldn't have understood that yet. He came to take care of the sin problem. He came to die that first time. The crowd wanted the Jesus who takes you to the all-you-can-eat buffet, not the Jesus who sends you into a storm, which is what he did to his disciples here. So in this case, we could say that Jesus protected his disciples by sending them into the storm. He's getting them out of emotional, spiritual harm's way by sending them into perhaps physical danger. He says, I want you to go before me. The idea is that he's going to join them later. And he sends them to Bethsaida. That's about two miles north of the Sea of Galilee and the region they were already in. So I have a map to try to show you kind of what region we're in. This is a bigger map. It's going to show what's happening next when he goes to Tyre and Sidon. But if you can see point number one, they are going somewhere over into here. Somewhere on that side of the lake is where the feeding of the 5,000 seems to have taken place. Somewhere in this area. And he says, go to Bethsaida. So the, head north, not far, and I will meet you. But you can see it didn't work that way. So they start here, and they head that way, and, and they end up on the other side. But that's where he tells them to go. Starting back in verse 45 again, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Please take note of that. He prayed. He departed to the mountain to pray. Why? Well, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, it's a mountainous region, hilly region. 
and he went up to one of the high slopes. It says the mountain, so apparently the readers of Mark's gospel knew where he was talking about. We don't. But he went up to the mountain to pray. Time to be alone with God. With the height, and that's what we're seeing in this passage here at the end of chapter 6, this is the height of his ministry in the Galilee region. This is the height of his popularity. From here on out, he's going to be withdrawing, and he's going to be heading to Jerusalem, and we know what happens in Jerusalem. He's going to die for the people. So this is a, a change. This is a turn of events, if you will. And he's praying for strength. He's praying for wisdom. He's spending time alone with his father because he's entering a new phase of ministry. I'd like to know for what he prayed. I'd like to know for whom he prayed. So I'm going to give you a, a few ideas. As I was just saying, he probably prayed for himself. He was praying for wisdom. He was communing with his father. He was asking. He was also talking. He was hearing from his father. It's possible that he spent time praying for the crowd he had just sent away. He had fed them. He'd met their physical needs, but he knew their spiritual needs. So he may have been praying for them. I believe, based on what we're going to see in a minute, that he was praying also for his disciples. But what I want to remind us of with a couple passages, one in Romans and one in Hebrews, is that today, particularly remember this if you're in a storm, he prays for us. He's praying for us. He's praying for you this morning. Let's look at this. Romans 8. Wonderful, wonderful verse. Romans 8, 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. So he died. We know that. And furthermore is also risen. Amen. He's risen who is even at the right hand of God. Yes, he's ascended. But what's he doing there? What is he doing at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us. Any of you young people, intercession, that's a fancy word for praying. To intercede is to, to talk on somebody else's behalf. In this case, to pray for somebody else. So if you pray for somebody else's request, you're interceding. And what is Jesus doing for us? He is interceding. He is praying to the Father on our behalf. He's pleading our cause. He's pleading our case. Here's another one, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Is Jesus alive this morning? Yes, he is alive this morning. So if he's alive, as long as he's alive, what's he going to be doing? He's going to be interceding. He's going to be praying for his Brothers and sisters, his spiritual children, believers in him. He's going to be praying. And this morning, you may be deep in a storm. And I may know about it and I may not. But he's praying for you. The God of the universe, come in human flesh, is praying for you. No, he doesn't care about my circumstances. This is just a little thing. He, he's not going to be bothered by that. He's praying for you. Big, small, anywhere in between. It all matters to him. Well, how do you know that? Let's keep reading. Because he prayed and then he saw. Look at verse 47. Then when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he was alone on the land. 
Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, if you've really been paying attention, you may be confused by that statement, when the evening came, because isn't that the reason the disciples said to send them away in the first place last week? Yes, it is. But there are two evenings in the Jewish way of thinking of the, the day, the way they divide it up. So the first evening is between when it begins to get dark and when it's dark. That twilight time would include that. And then this is the evening when it's actually dark. They have ways of determining when the Sabbath begins by whether you can see two stars and that kind of thing. So it's a different meaning. It's a little bit later now. It's after sunset. And what does he see? What's going on? The boat was in the middle of the sea. The boat that they had taken was in the middle. Well, what's it doing in the middle? It shouldn't have been in the middle. The lake isn't huge. About seven miles across, if I remember right. But they're more toward the middle. They were just supposed to kind of go up the edge of the lake just a little bit, a couple miles, and they got blown out to the middle. And he saw them. He saw them struggling. Now, how did he see them, and what does that mean? Let's explore that for a minute. John's account tells us this was near Passover. If so, if it was a cloudless night, they were nearing a full moon. So maybe he could see them out on the lake. But if they're in the middle by this point, it's two or three miles, so it would have been very hard to see. Again, we don't know that there was lightning crashing, thunder crashing and lightning brightening the sky, so, so that's not it necessarily. People want to say, well, was he seeing with his divine nature? Was he seeing this supernaturally? Sure, why not? I don't know that, but he certainly could be. We just finished the feeding of the 5,000. We're going into walking on water. I have no problem with him being able to see supernaturally his disciples. That part doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that he saw them. Here he is up on the mountain, alone with his father, praying, and he saw his disciples in distress. He saw them. He cared about them. He saw them King James says, toiling and rowing. That gives us a little bit of an idea there. And that may be where you feel like you are today, that you are toiling, you are laboring, you are, were they doing anything wrong? Let's review. Were they doing anything wrong? They were where they were supposed to be. In fact, they were doing what they were supposed to do, and they were working at it pretty hard because they were having to row. The wind was against them, is what we read here. So, Hour after hour, and I can only imagine what the conversations might have been. Are you sure he said Bethsaida? What if we just meet him somewhere else? It's not really that big a lake. We, we can catch up with him later. He really wants us to go there? Well, this is not the best time to go there. The wind is totally against us. It would be better to go over here and maybe go to Bethsaida later. Why did he send us alone without him? I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know what they expressed to one another. But it says here they were straining at rowing. Literally, they were driving at the oars. So these fishermen, who would have been used to this, and the tax collectors and others who might not have been used to this, are all working hard to try to get this boat where Jesus told them to go. They are obeying, and it's not going well. And we learn later, they're not even on course. They're, they're so far off course, they're not going to end up on the same side of the lake they were supposed to. But he saw them. And he cared that they were struggling. So not only did he pray for them, not only did he see them, he came to them. 
And that actually brings us to our second point of the morning. God sometimes comes to us in the storm. I'm halfway through verse 48. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him when were troubled. It would help us to know when the fourth watch of the night is. We're now talking about 3 to 6 a.m. So if we stretch this as long as it could be, they've been rowing nine, at the most, 12 hours, at the least six hours at this point. Very least, it could have been six hours. They've been struggling to get to their destination, which should have just taken them a little while. It's dark, and it's windy, and they can't see where they're going, perhaps, depending on the moon, and they're not getting anywhere. So I would imagine that you may be wondering, like I was, why did he wait so long? If he could see them struggling, if he'd been praying for six hours, nine hours, that's a long time to pray, by the way, it's also a long time to row. And they're struggling. And they may be frustrated. And they may be ready to give up. And they probably have calluses. Or maybe, maybe they have blisters now, and the blisters are probably opening up and bleeding, and their, their backs are tired. The passage doesn't tell us specifically why he waited that long. But it was important to Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to tell us that he waited that long. So I think there's some significance there. Here's what I think, and this is only what I think. He waited until they were to the end of their resources. He waited until they knew that they could not manage this on their own. He waited until they were ready to pray and ask for help. Because in a moment, he, they cry out to him. And he comes, and he comes and gets in the boat with them. So perhaps he was waiting for them to ask for help, to pray to him. And certainly he waited until they were worn out. There are times we get to the end of our, our fight. The fight's gone out of us, right? I've done everything I can. Unfortunately, we sometimes wait until that point until we start praying, huh? I think that's where they were. They're in their windstorm. They're struggling. They're trying to obey, and it's not going well. And they're at the end of themselves, and that's when he came to them. He didn't just see them. He came to them. How did he come to them? Not what they were expecting, not what we would be expecting. He came to them walking on the, walking on the sea, walking on the water. Anybody here be able to do that? I can't do that. As far as we know, Jesus and from the parallel account in Matthew, Peter are the only people who've ever done this. And he came walking on the water toward them. Someone said he was unhindered by the waves. And then we have this puzzling statement, he would have passed them by. Somebody said he, he must have gotten out in the passing lane and he was getting ready to truck right by him. Why would he say that? And it, honestly, as I've read this over the years, this, this has always gone straight over my head. But I believe, I know, after studying it this week, he meant to pass them by rather than just come up behind them so that they could see, that they could make no mistake. They had to see him as he came by them. They couldn't miss him. They couldn't miss the fact that he's walking on what? He can do that? 
He's walking on water. If we compare this to some accounts in the Old Testament, the statement, he would have passed them by, think for a moment with me back to Moses. You can look this up later if you want to on your own, but Exodus 33, the Lord passed by him to show him his glory. He hid him because he couldn't see all of his glory. We could just see the back of him. You can read the story again. But that's the idea here. Elijah at Mount Horeb, the Lord passed by him. And probably this is an allusion to the Old Testament so that they would recognize he passed by. He's passing by to show them his glory. He's passing by to make sure they don't miss it. They see he's doing something that only God can do. He's showing them his glory. And they thought it was a ghost. The Greek word under that is the word that gives us phantom. That's what they think. You think, how dumb is that? Well, have you ever been at four in the morning on a boat or driving in a car or up with a sick child or whatever, and you're not thinking quite as straight as you might normally be thinking? They're exhausted, and it's late in the wee hours of the morning, and they've never seen anybody walk on water. I haven't either. And they think, okay, did you see that? No, I'm just seeing things. No, I saw it too. And they start to see... It says they all saw him, and they were scared. They were troubled. They were terrified. When it says they cried out, they screamed in terror. It's the same term that was used elsewhere for the shrieks of those possessed by demons. They were yelling. They were loud, and they were scared. But immediately, verse 50 says, he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. So three quick statements there. Be of good cheer. Well, that sounds a little strange to us, like keep your chin up, smile, you'll feel better. That's not what he's saying. It is Jesus urging his disciples to have courage and to continue to have courage. So he says, be of good cheer, do not be afraid. And we've seen that statement, that command before. It means stop being afraid, stop being fearful. So we have these two commands, be courageous, don't be afraid. Why? How? Well, that's the middle statement. Because it is I. You know what it literally says in the Greek? Take a wild guess. I am. He's saying, I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the maker of heaven and earth. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Why? Because I am God, and I am here. That's what he's telling them. God sometimes sends us into a storm. He sometimes comes to us in that storm. And sometimes he calms the storm, and we're thankful when he does. Verse 51 tells us about that. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. He went up into the boat. They cried out, they, they prayed, they asked for help, and he came. He responded. And it says, as soon as he got there, 
The wind ceased. That's like the other story, isn't it? Everything calmed down immediately, miraculously. If you compare this to Matthew, and if you want to look at it later, Matthew 14 and John 6, those are the parallel passages. If you put it all together, there were really four miracles that happened that night. One is that Jesus walked on water. Second, Matthew tells us that Peter walked on water. Third, the wind stopped as soon as Jesus got in the boat. And fourth, if you read John, it says that as soon as he got in the boat, they reached their destination. I don't know how that worked, but that's what it says. So there are four miracles going on. And what Mark tells us is that the wind ceased, and it did. That next statement, the one in verse 52, is the one that really jumped out at me this week. Because I've read this. Those of you who have gone to church all your lives, maybe you had a Bible class if you were in a Christian school, you have known about Jesus walking on water for a long time. But what does this say about the disciples? Verse 52 says, they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. That word hardened means they had grown calloused. They had grown dull. They didn't have understanding. John Phillips said they had become so used to seeing miracles that they no longer saw them. And even when they saw them, with their outward eyes, they failed to grasp their significance. I'm afraid some of us could be there. You know these gospel stories so well, inside and out. You can quote them to me. You can teach them to me. And they lose something. The miracles aren't so miraculous anymore. They had just seen him take five loaves and two fish and feed thousands and thousands of people. And I believe, including them, give them each a basket. Give them the food that they didn't have time to eat. In what ways has your heart grown hard? I asked myself that this week. Is there some way in which you may be hard-hearted? Is there some way in which your heart has become rebellious and insensitive? A great prayer to pray are the words of David in Psalm 139. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the right next step. If you think there may be something wrong, if the word of God isn't fresh and alive to you, if, if coming to meet with God's people is just something you feel like you have to do, read your Bible, no, I'd rather not. Ask God to show you what's wrong. Ask him to show you if there's some sin that you need to confess and forsake. That ends the section about Jesus walking on the water, but we still have one more paragraph here that finishes out the chapter. And what this is is a summary statement. Those of you who have studied the book of Acts or you were here when we studied that, 
There are summary statements when you get to the end of a section. Well, this is what we have here in Mark. This is the high point. This is the climax of Jesus' ministry around Galilee. Verse 53 says, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the, that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. So where are they now? Let's look at that map one more time. They were supposed to be going here, and they ended up over here. They're in Gennesaret, not that far from Capernaum. So they're on the opposite side of the lake from where he had intended for them to go, or told them to go. We know that he knew what was going to happen. I read that Gennesaret is a small, fertile plain, so good farmland, located on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and that Capernaum is really on the northern edge of that plain. And it says in verse 56, wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid their sick in the marketplaces and begged him that, he, that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. So marketplaces, that doesn't make sense that that would be out in the country. The, the word just means where people assemble, whether that's in a town or a city or out in the open country. Where people would gather, they brought their sick in hopes that Jesus would pass by. And if they heard he was over there, they went over there, and they carried their sick on mats, like we've read previously in the book of Mark. And it says they wanted to touch the hem of his garment. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, in the book of Mark? Because the woman with the issue of blood just wanted to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. Same idea here. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God's power to heal was very powerful in this situation. Because it says that those who reached out and touched even the fringe, and, and we know that from the Old Testament as well, that was the tassels on the edge of the garment of a righteous Jewish man. And they reached out and touched it, and they were made well. He had power to heal. Those he touched were healed. If he spoke a word, they were healed. If they touched the fringe of his clothing, they were healed. Person after person after person after person after person. It says, as many as touched him were made well. We don't know how many people. This is a, a paragraph summary. But as many as touched him were made well. There were multiple, miraculous, instantaneous healings, further proving that he is God. Over and over, we, as we read this, and his disciples were confronted with the fact that he is more than a good rabbi, a good teacher. He's more than a prophet. He is God. No prophet has ever walked on water. No prophet has ever fed this many people with so little. And by this point, three of them had seen him raise a little girl from the dead. They had seen lepers cleansed. They had seen demons cast out. He is God. That's what we come face to face with. That's what they came face to face with in this passage. Sometimes God sends us into a storm. Sometimes he comes to us in the storm. Sometimes he delivers us from the storm. But sometimes he doesn't. But at the end of all that, he's still God. And he's still with us. And he still sees us. And he still prays for us. And he still loves us. If there's anybody here, if there's anybody online who has never put your faith in Jesus, that's the invitation to you today. Trust this wonderful God. Trust him with your eternal life.
believers, you've trusted him with your eternal life. Are you going to trust him with this life? Sometimes it's easier to say, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven, but oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about such and such. Trust him. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace, because I need help to do this, to trust him more. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In the quietness of this moment, if the Holy Spirit's moving in your heart to do something, do it. If you're in a storm right now and you're struggling and you don't know, why isn't Jesus coming? Why don't I sense his presence with me? He's here, but we need to cry out to him. We need to ask for his help. We need to come to the end of ourselves. Is there some way in which the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, this is the section of your heart that's hard. This is what you haven't given over to me. Would you surrender that today? Whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, obey. Trust him. Commit your way to the Lord. He will bring it to pass. Father, this is your word. You've spoken to us this morning. But I pray that it wouldn't fall on hard, stony ground, hard hearts. Lord, these disciples had been with you perhaps two years at this point, some of them. They had seen amazing miracles. They had heard you teach. And yet their hearts were hard. Lord, we confess, we acknowledge that it's possible for us to be going through the disciplines of the Christian life, gathering with your people, listening to sermons, and still have a hard heart. Would you please break up the fallow ground where we need it? Would you please give us grace to trust you in short storms and long storms and big storms and small storms that we would trust and that we would obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.